You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. This is the third and final of three editions of Lighthearted we're releasing this week for Cape Cod Week. And my co-host again today is Michelle Jewell Shaw. And we are coming to you again from the semi-luxurious Study Room 3 of the Portsmouth Public Library here on the New Hampshire seacoast. Hi, Michelle. I'm hoping you have another fun fact about Cape Cod to share. Hello, Jeremy. I most certainly do. Provincetown, at the tip of Cape Cod, is where the Pilgrims first landed before they move on to Plymouth. It's also home to three lighthouses, and Provincetown is also home to the tallest all-granite structure in the country, the Pilgrim Monument. The monument was built from August 1907 to August 1910. It's 252 feet tall, and it's open for climbing. It's next to the Provincetown Museum, which highlights the town's rich maritime history. Have you climbed the Pilgrim Monument? I have not. I have seen it, but I have not climbed to the top of it. Well, you should. (laughs) I will next time I'm there. Okay, I've climbed it. It's an amazing view. You can see Provincetown's three lighthouses from the top. Long Point, Wood End, and Race Point, uh, which is right at the tip of the Cape. Our guest today is the chairman of the Cape Cod chapter, the American Lighthouse Foundation, which takes care of those three lighthouses in Provincetown. And today we'll mostly talk about Race Point Light Station. Race Point's name comes from the strong cross current known as a race that made navigation around the tip of Cape Cod a nightmare for mariners. The first lighthouse at Race Point was built in 1816. The cast iron tower that stands today was built in 1876. After the light was automated in 1972, the keeper's house was boarded up and the property was abandoned. In 1995, the station was licensed to the New England Lighthouse Foundation, which is known as the American Lighthouse Foundation, or ALF. The keeper's house has been restored to the 1950s era and the five-bedroom house is open for overnight stays. The former Fog Signal Building, or Whistle House, is also open for overnight stays. Gary Childs, a retired firefighter and paramedic, is chairman of the Cape Cod chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. We recently spoke at the Nonantum Resort in Kennebunkport, Maine, just before the annual gala dinner of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Let's listen to that conversation now. We are talking here at the Nonantum Resort in Kennebunkport, Maine, just before the annual gala dinner of the American Lighthouse Foundation. So I do want to explain that if you hear any background noise, and that includes traffic, because we're actually out on the uh, the front porch area right near the road here, so you might hear a little traffic, you might hear a little uh, conversation in the background, but again, uh, we are uh, at the Nonantum Resort here in beautiful Kennebunkport, and I want to thank you, Gary, for spending some uh, time with me here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It's good to see you again. Uh, so, Gary, you've been involved with uh, Race Point Light Station for quite a few years. Uh, how long has it been now? So I did the math the other day, and it works out to be 15 years, just about. I went out there as a guest in 2005, fell in love with the place, and after a couple of years was invited to become a keeper out there, where we watch over guests that are there to make sure they're safe, and then was moved up onto the board, and then moved up to number two, and then about five years ago took the helm out there with a very strong crew of about 70 volunteers that make the place run. Wow. That's amazing. I know you have a, a great crew there. 
The isolation of Race Point Light Station, I would say, is both a blessing and a curse. It makes it a beautiful place for people to get away, but also uh, I would say it makes anything getting anything done there kind of a nightmare. Can you talk a little bit about the logistics of getting work done out at Race Point? Well, we'll go with the fact that we do our bookings. They open up October for our keepers and for November for the general public. So before we even ended one season, we were already starting the next season. So there's paperwork in the background. And then we, Thanksgiving, directly after that, we shut the place down like any cottage on the Cape and drain the water, um, secure the buildings, put up uh, whatever we need to keep an eye on the place for the winter. And then about every 10 days, make a trip out there as long as the weather and the the two-mile sand road is passable uh, to keep an eye on the place. And then about the beginning of March, we go out like every other place on the Cape, turn the water on, find out where the leaks are, get rid of the mice that come into the building, um, and start the general checklist of what needs to be done. Um, being two miles down the sand road and uh, in the preseason um, is a bit of a challenge. We never know what the beach is going to pre- present to us. The last two years, the beach has been impassable on the back road, and we've had to run the outer beach. Uh, the inner beach is now open for this year. Um, logistics of work. So two years ago, three nor'easters consecutively uh, took shingles off one side of the house, and we were unable to get out there and effect repairs um, and ended up with close to about $5,000 worth of materials um, that needed to be replaced from the roof to insulation to sheetrock to wiring to painting to tile on the floor. So we ended up with a dozen volunteers to get out there and make the work on the place and still meet the uh, third week of April deadline to get the building out in operation. During the year, our logistics are trying to get out there for work or anything else is for about two months. Um, the piping plover, the threatened species, can interfere with our ability to get out there, and we have to go with escort. It's prescribed times of the day. Um, and it's always interesting that our tradespeople, to get them out there, we have to make sure all the permits are in place for them to move. But it is a jewel at the end of the beach. Yes, it is. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the overnight stays at Race Point. There are rooms available in both the Keeper's House itself and also the Fog Signal Building, which is usually referred to as the Whistle House. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the accommodations themselves? Sure. Um, in the Keeper's House, uh, the, the Keeper that's in residence stays downstairs in the bedroom down there to uh, act as um, taxi driver, if you will, as we pick people up and bring them out. They bring their own drinking water, their own sheets, their own pillowcases. We have the pillows, we have the beds, we have the blankets, we have everything else. Um, So our keepers are not concierges, but they make the place run. Upstairs, there are three rooms that accommodate uh, three uh, in one room in the blue room. And then the yellow room, which is the most popular room, accommodates uh, uh, three plus one That looks out at the ocean and also looks at the lighthouse. And then the green room on the south side of the house that looks out over the water, uh, that will take two plus two plus one. So five max that are out there. We provide all transportation for those folks. The folks that are in the Whistle House, which is a one-story brick structure and is set up as two separate apartments, um, people have to provide their own transportation and get a permit from the National Park. Typically during the summer, that's a week-long stay, Um, and they come out. Again, they're pretty much on their own. We make sure that that nothing goes damaging with them, 
And then in the off season, they come out for a minimum of two nights. Um, back to the keeper's house for one thing. We decided locally that we would not have a two-night minimum. We specifically wanted to have a one-night so that people could try it, see if they like it. And strangely enough, we put a four-night cap on it so that people don't stay out for a full week or two weeks. We want as many people to see the property and enjoy it in alignment with our mission statement. Um, we get phone calls, can we book the place for the month of August? And we say, sorry, we don't work that way. We're trying to get as many folks in there who can see the place as possible from both the states and international. Now, uh, if people want to visit the light station, but they're not staying overnight, I understand there are also public open houses during the summer. Can you say a little bit about how those work? Sure. So we start in June and we go to October and we do the first and third Saturdays of the month. Um, our volunteers are out there to, to handle the lighthouse tours directly. So people either hike out and we get many day trippers that come out or they come out in their own private ORVs, that too. And uh, we have to pay attention to there's a transport agency that's been out there since the 40s. Uh, Arts Dune uh, tours, and they come out on Sundays and bring folks out to the lighthouse. And there's a bit of money exchanged over that, so they can, they are, they do well, and we get a little something on that end of it. We do re request a donation um, to help keep for the preservation and restoration of the lighthouse. Everything out there is exposed to the salt and the salt air, and that takes a heavy toll. You mentioned earlier that you have uh, somewhere around uh, 70 volunteers, which is fantastic a very dedicated group of volunteers. Can you say a little bit more about what's required to be a volunteer for Race Point? So the specifics are on our, our website, which I'll talk about later, but we require that to become a volunteer, um, they have a data form to fill out, and we look for people who are handy in all the different trades and such, and also people people. Um, we, we like them to have spent several nights out there uh, to understand what the place is all about as a guest first. Um, and then at the local level, we look at the group and decide how many we need. And usually we like people in pairs um, because we like to have the duplication. If something goes wrong, there's a backup out there and, and kind of discourage solo keeping. And, but we do pair people up their solos to make it work. What's required is the volunteers. First, they have to belong to the American Lighthouse Foundation uh, dues there. And that also covers them for liability for driving our vehicles. They then come out and, again, they... They make sure people, all their belongings get out there, and they keep an eye on them, and they have to kind of find a line between being a historian or allowing the person who's seeking solitude to have the room they want without any intrusion. So it's kind of an interesting uh, mix with that. On top of that, we require them to do 10 hours a year per person for other projects, be it lighthouse tours or painting or um, going out to our other two lights and doing some work out there. And inevitably, there's a punch list on the wall, and people can pick what they feel most comfortable doing. We have another group of volunteers that were just out there two days ago, and that's the final group that follows the work group in April. And they go out and paint. They uh, The painting's all done. They put the rugs down, put the shades up, and they make sure the place is completely presentable from May 1. Um, we have people come and go. Uh, we've had long-term people. We've had people whose lives get a change in their life, and they they choose not to do it again, and that's fine. We're good with that. Um, about every two years, we hold another volunteer group orientation, which is a two-day project. The first day is a PowerPoint all day with lunch, where we kind of cover everything about what makes it work. 
And then on day two, we go out to the house and they get some oversand operations and we go through the whole place and we literally crash the building. We, we shut down the electrical and they, they put, draw on the keeper's manual and go through the steps of how to restore power in the house and handle the small emergencies that show up. We are very fortunate. We have a large group and very dedicated folks. Uh, obviously, uh, volunteering at Race Point Lighthouse is a, a big part of what the Cape Cod chapter does. But is there uh, are there other things that the volunteers do besides uh, working at Race Point uh, Light Station? So besides the Race Point, we also, um, in our charter, um, have uh, some exposure to the other two lights in Provincetown of Wood End and Long Point, both on the outer beach. In about every four years, we paint those two lighthouses on the exterior. Uh, Coast Guard maintains the optics, the bulb, if you will, the lantern, the LEDs, and the power and the batteries. And, but as far as security or anything else like that or painting the structures, we do that on a volunteer basis mm -hmm. um, for those two lights. We unofficially also help out with Sandy Neck Light, another ALF chapter, which uh, we actually have an easement on. So we make sure that that lantern out there stays lighted. And about every 10 weeks or so, I make a trip out there to um, replace the batteries. Uh, we'll make sure it's working and then yearly change the batteries out there um, to make sure that lantern stays, stays uh, lighted. Now, how can uh, our listeners find out more about Race Point Lighthouse and the Cape Cod chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation? So there's a couple of ways. While we're a historical chapter and we've on the historical register, um, we're also tied to the 21st century, so we do um, we do uh, um, Facebook and other media-related uh, social media deals. So we have a Race Point Facebook page. Um, we're also on the web, so we are at racepointlighthouse.org, all one word, racepointlighthouse.org, and our website can explain all the histories and how to turn around and get a, a, a hold of us. Um, and uh, we we also do constant contact and. We do a Twitter account as well. So we, as much as being a historical building, we have people out there who are booking a room on their phone as they're standing out there. And we do. T we have people every once in a while a walk up. Um, our foreign uh, international folks, we provide their linens, and we will pick people up at either our traditional spot right off of Route 6. We also pick people up at McMillan's Wharf, and we also pick people up at the airport, and if they come in by the fast ferry. So anyway, one way or the other, we make it all work. So Gary, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, anything you'd like to tell? If you could tell people one thing about Race Point Lighthouse and or the Cape Cod chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation, what would you like to tell people? Um, people are always blown away when they come out there and they find out that they can sit on the porch and be about 150 feet away from the water and listen to the, listen to the whales breach listen to the whale watch boats go by, and when the busyness stops at the end of the day, they have the solace out there of the sun setting on one side and the sun rising on the other, and occasionally we shut out all of the lights in the building and there's only one light out there. That would be the lighthouse, the quarter, the, the every 10-second white flash. Um, people walk away from that place with their sores, souls restored, I think the thing that we've used over the years from Jim Walker and other folks that are there as we stand on our predecessor's shoulders is the guest book. And the guest books from both buildings are filled with returning and first-time people who are experiencing solitude and the peace out there.
It's a really special place. I certainly agree with that. I, you know, I go back over 30 years. The first time I walked out there with my wife, it was all boarded up. And to see what, what's taken place there over the years, the progress that's been made, you guys have uh, really uh, pulled off miracles there. And I congratulate you on that. So thank you so much for being with me today, Gary. I really appreciate your time. And I will uh, be seeing you in a few minutes at the American Lighthouse Foundation Gala dinner. So thank, thank you so much, Gary. Thank you very much. On today's Lighthouse History segment, we're going to discuss early lighthouse technology, specifically the various kinds of illuminants and apparatus that were used in the early days of lighthouses before the important invention of the Fresnel lens in 1822. I want to give credit to Tom Tagg of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, who is the guru of lighthouse technology. Much of what we're about to tell you comes from his research, and you can find many fascinating articles by Tom about lighthouse history and technology on the USLHS website at uslhs.org. The earliest navigational lights used simple open fires that usually burned wood. As time passed, the fires were contained in iron baskets known as braziers, and soon coal was often used as the fuel. The Dungeness Lighthouse in England in the early 1600s burned as much as 400 tons of coal each year. Smoke was often a problem with the coal-fired lights. In the age of the coal-fired lighthouses, the lights were eventually enclosed in lanterns with ventilating flues in an attempt to get rid of the smoke. Meanwhile, candles were used in some lighthouses as early as 1540 in England. The candles were placed in a candelabrum or chandelier kind of arrangement surrounded by a lantern with glass windows. When it went into operation in 1698, the first Eddystone Lighthouse in England used 60 one-pound candles. A few years later, when the first lighthouse in the American colonies went into service in Boston Harbor, it used wax or tallow candles. Simultaneously with coal fires and candles, primitive oil lamps were used in some lighthouses by around 1500. Some of the early lamps were nothing more than stone bowls filled with oil with one or more small wicks. Different oils were tried, including fish oil, seal oil, and eventually whale oil. These primitive lamps and wicks produced a very poor flame. In the 1700s, so-called spider lamps, which used multiple wicks, became popular. By the 1760s, a type of spider lamp called the pan lamp was used in many lighthouses. The pan lamp had as many as 24 wicks and could operate for as long as 12 hours on a single fill of oil. Although they produced a lot of smoke and fumes, pan lamps were used for nearly a century. Other types of spider lamps were also used for many years. Then in 1780, a Swiss physicist living in France, François-Pierre-Ami Argan, patented a very important invention, the double draft burner, which became known as the argon lamp after its inventor. The argon lamp used two thin metal tubes, one inside the other. A wick in the form of a long hollow cylinder was placed between the two tubes. Air can pass between the center of the wick and also around the outside of the wick before being drawn into the cylindrical chimney, which steadies the flame and improves the flow of air. Argon lamps would be widely used in lighthouses. 
The argon lamp was introduced to Thomas Jefferson in Paris in 1784, and according to Jefferson, it gave off a light equal to six or eight candles. Argon lamps burned whale oil, seal oil, or vegetable oils as fuel. In 1787, another inventor created a constricted chimney that created a brighter flame. And in the early 1800s, the Scottish engineer, Robert Stevenson, paired argon lamps with copper parabolic reflectors at the Bell Rock Lighthouse. He placed 24 of the lamps and reflectors in an arrangement that revolved with the use of a clockwork apparatus, producing an alternating red and white light. It was the first revolving light in Scotland. In the next Lighthouse History segment on this podcast, we'll discuss the American appropriation of the argon lamp and reflector technology by Winslow Lewis and his monopoly on American lighthouse lighting in the early years of the 19th century. It's now time for our trivia question. The first two people to get the answer right are going to win some prizes. And what is the question today? What was the name of the Swiss physicist living in France who invented an improved oil lamp around 1780 that was widely used in lighthouses? Again, what was the name of the Swiss physicist living in France who invented an improved oil lamp around 1780 that was widely used in lighthouses? We just mentioned this a minute ago, so listeners should know if they were paying attention. And I'm going to make an executive decision here, and I'm going to say they, they just need to tell us the last name of the, uh, the inventor. That sounds, that sounds fair. His okay. name's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Of course, they can, they can Google this and find his name. So, but I, they shouldn't do that, though. They should listen. They should have been listening, so they shouldn't have to Google it. But anyway, the first person to answer the question correctly gets a copy of the book Lighthouses of America, published in association with the U.S. Lighthouse Society. The book Lighthouses of America is a beautiful 176-page hardcover book with stunning photographs of lighthouses across the country taken by society photographers. The second person to answer correctly gets an official U.S. Lighthouse Society passport. The Lighthouse Passport Program provides enthusiasts the opportunity to help preserve lighthouses as well as a wonderful way to keep a pictorial history of their lighthouse adventures. You can learn more about the Passport Program at uslhs.org. To enter, send your answer in an email to me at jeremy at uslhs.org. Be sure to say you're answering the trivia question in Lighthearted Episode 13, and again, send it in an email to jeremy at uslhs.org. That's J-E-R-E-M-Y at U-S-L-H-S dot O-R-G. That wraps up this edition of Lighthearted. And it wraps up Cape Cod Week on Lighthearted as well. Many thanks, as always, to the wonderful volunteers and staff of the USLHS at Point No Point in Washington and all around the world. And, of course, thanks to our guest Gary Childs of the Cape Cod chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Be sure to check out racepointlighthouse.org online. Be sure to check out the U.S. Lighthouse Society website at uslhs.org for information on their domestic and international tours, the J. Candace Clifford Lighthouse Research Catalog, the Passport Program, and lots of other fun and interesting things. Also check out news.uslhs.org for lighthouse news and other features, and the USLHS 
social media pages on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks so much as always, Michelle, for co-hosting this edition of Lighthearted and all the editions uh, during Cape Cod Week. And until next time, keep a good light. <laughs>